Welcome to Heavy Strategy. Today's topic is questions on technical debt. Now, Jonah, this was your idea. What do you want to, how do you want to frame it? I think technical debt is something that lots of people like to talk about. We get asked about all the time. But what I'd like to do with this session is bring up the topic that both of us are a lot more interested in and intrigued by, which is this notion of operational debt, meaning processes that are outmoded and expensive. When you threw this topic at me, I went like, oh, it's going to be easy. And I sat down and started, you know, mapping out what I thought about technical debt. And the thing that struck me is that for a lot of time, I've been thinking about technical debt. But the thing that's really brought my mind onto operational focus is the emergence of software-defined X, you know, data center, campus, when, you know, whatever it is, there are definitely technology debts. That is, if I choose a technology or if I choose a product, I inherit the limitations of that product. But a lot of the time, what we stay, haven't considered or made more of an issue of is the operational debt. How do I operate this technology? How do I change it? How do I upgrade it? How do I operate it every day? Do you think technical debt is more than just technology limitations or restrictions or product problems, or, or is it also the operational aspect? Well, the reason I brought it up is really the operational component. And I want to point out that there's kind of a cycle because operational processes are developed in response to existing technology. So you bring technology in to enhance existing operational processes. Then you revise the processes to take advantage of the technology. Hmm. And then you bring in new technology and there's this constant cycle. But what ends up happening is that you have operational processes. You're trying to enhance processes that are obsolete yeah. uh, in a lot of cases. And most people don't sit down and look at what processes might actually be obsolete in their environment. And I mean, business processes, not just operational technology operational processes are you trying to do something that doesn't even need to be done anymore because mm. it's been obviated by emerging technology my initial thoughts were like one of the greatest problems i've faced as an owner operator of a technology infrastructure is how do i upgrade it and then the only time i can upgrade it is on saturday night <laughs> you know what i mean because at the outage risk and etc cetera, etc cetera. how do i uh, make my backups faster or why do i have a person whose whole job it is is to key in these commands or why do I have a firewall change process which involves a piece of paper being dragged around a meeting room? Exactly. And and in fact, I think automation, you know, one of the key questions and beginning to, to assess how much, much operational debt you have is, can this be automated? But then I would take a step back and say, do we need to even do this thing in the first place? Or is there a way to not even need to do this thing anymore? Yeah. Um, and that's those two questions. You know, what I would love to see organizations start doing is carrying around kind of a, a notebook mm. and a and a um, magnifying glass and saying, can this be automated? Do we need to do it? <laughs> uh, do we need to do it at all? My increasing perspective is that automation should be addressing operational debt, not technology debt. And I didn't realize that until we started to talk about this topic, you know, and I started to mind map it out because technical debt is structural. It sits underneath whatever decisions you make when buying a product, you get lock in to a particular vendor, you inherit the faults and the flaws that that vendor has put into their product, you know, whether because they're cheap or they tried to wangle their way or they had substandard developers on the project, doesn't matter, right? That you inherit those problems. What I'm more considering is this idea that if you're automating, what you're actually trying to remove is operational debt. How do I add, move and change? Re, you know, unroll it back. How do I improve the decision-making process? How can I get, the boss says, if I make this change, what's the risk? Have you got statistics on how many changes like this made? You know, that sort of stuff. 
I, I do think that's a really key insight that's really worth highlighting and stressing that automation helps with operational debt more than anything else. Mm. And I think it's really, really important to think about where automation can address a lot of these a lot of these concerns, but also, and then the next step beyond that, which I keep coming back to, is, is this a process that needs to be done anyway, or are you capturing a bunch of meaningless yeah. statistics because 10 years ago, those statistics were meaningful? That would allude to the fact that operational debt occurs because we've done things, we set up a process, and now we're frightened to change the process because it might have technology implications, cause a failure. Or, or more to the point, it might, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten comfortable is really what it comes down to. You know, since we, we sort of posed ourselves the question, which matters more, I think operational debt is more insidious because it comes down to people being very comfortable at what they do and not having to change what they do. Technologists are fairly comfortable changing their products. You know, that's what we do for a living. So in a sense, when we're when we're rectifying technical debt, that's an easy-ish fix because we know, okay, bring in the new stuff, not the old stuff. And that's what we do for a living. That's what we get paid to do. So that's that's in our comfort zone. But changing how we do things, the drag, the hidden drag that happens with operational debt, and I would argue is almost generational, is yeah. there's a creative tension between the newbies who come in and go, hey, we could do it this way. <laughs> and they're actually right sometimes because mm -hmm. they're not held back by the past. But in some cases, they're, they're clueless. Wrong. Hmm. And yeah, and they don't own. understand issues of scale and they don't have the experience. Yeah, I call it corporate memory. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the, when the old person says it won't work that way because we tried that and it doesn't work. And of course, the uh, the new person says, can't we try it again? You know, and, it right. that. and you're like, no, I <laughs> think we've determined that that yeah. things fall down and water is wet. We're good. Yeah. So operational debt then would have multiple angles. There's obviously the limitations of there's the human angle of operational debt. This is the way it's always been done, or we're doing it this way because that's how we think of it or whatever. Um, I think there's also a tool debt as well. So once you implement a, an S, you know, some sort of software, you get locked into what the tool can deliver to you. And this is true of any technology. Whatever technology you get, when you buy SAP, your company starts to operate the way that SAP does because changing SAP to fit your model is incredibly difficult. Now, they'll say that they've got a manufacturing model or a warehousing, but at the end of the day, SAP is one product. And the weird part about watching companies implement a particular accounting package is they all start to look and run the same way because the software defines what they can do, right? It's a bit like driving a car. You can drive a car anywhere you like as long as it's on a road. Yes, right. as long as it's on a road and it's got a steering wheel and it goes faster or slower, or yeah. stops. Yeah, exactly. You can drive it over a cliff, but it's not exactly going to give you the results you want. I think that's very true that business processes get crystallized in technology tools to the point where it makes it very hard to change because you're not just changing technology processes. You're also having to go back and change business processes and that you know may not be optimal, but nobody wants to readdress them to see what what it would take to optimize them. And in fact, I would argue that, frankly, all of digital transformation, the whole buzzword and the whole idea that we're spending, you know, whatever it is, billions of dollars and, yeah. you know, time and talent is simply a recognition of operational debt. We've had the yeah. capability to do all the stuff that we're doing with digital transformation 20 years ago, really. But all of a sudden, everybody noticed we were doing well, it wrong. And you know, weirdly, I'm going to turn into a curmudgeonly, what I call turn into Ghana, grumpy old network engineer, G-O-N-E-R. And in the old days, when what we would do is we would sit in a room with Perl or Bash, and we would program SNMP variables to monitor the network and configure the network. 
And we stopped doing that because the vendors decided that we were actually causing them trouble and they made it very difficult for us to continue to write to the APIs on the boxes. They didn't want us to do, they wanted us to use the CLI as a standard method. And all of those software tools were a bit unstable, like running Perl from Solaris was really the only one that worked. And Sun wanted to charge you a lot of money for a Solaris box and they weren't very practical and nobody wanted, you know, all those sorts of things. I don't think operational debt drove software defined. I think software defined emerged as a way to put new features into technology. The thing about operational debt is that it actually renews every day. There's no way to pay it down. Unless you address it, the operational debt exists. And that debt incurs as I have people with headcount who are overcoming a, on Saturday night at five o'clock, I have a change window that will run to five o'clock on Sunday because we're going to upgrade a switch or we're going to upgrade windows. I was talking to someone today, uh, this week, They've got 2008, Windows 2008 servers still in their infrastructure. <laughs> it's 2022. Ouch. Think about that. And their cyber insurance has said, we won't cover you until they're upgraded. So well, the, that's one good thing cyber insurance did. Uh, interesting discussion there about, you know, the impact of cyber insurance on. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I'm going to pull your head out of the grumpy old network engineer space, particularly the networking, and give an example of operational debt in a non-networking, non-infrastructure area, which is as AI and big data came along, one of the challenges was getting people to stop the the normal process of analytics, which is let me propose a solution and let's crank the wheel and turn the, you know, crunch the analytics and see if that solution works. And if mm. that doesn't work, we go back to the drawing board and fine tune it and fine tweak and, and tweak it yeah. with AI and big data. Actually, it's the other way around. You go to the system and say, propose a bunch of solutions for me, propose, in fact, a bunch of scenarios for me, and then use GAN or some other, you know, uh, generative um, adversarial network to basically fight it out and tell me which answer is the best. So instead yeah. of coming up with the model and asking for answers, you're actually coming going to it and asking for the model. That's upending how every, an entire generation of how to do analytics, and that's painful, so most people don't. And what we found is that people tend to just bring in new people who haven't had their minds their field of view narrowed yeah. by decades, decades of experience with what is possible. Yeah. And since it wasn't possible to do this 20 years ago. So I think the thing about operational debt is that you're basically looking at failing every day in some way. And it's a human thing to not admit to failure, consciously or subconsciously, that eventually you just say, it's a lot easier just to say, this is the way we do it. And that's the way it is. And, and to move on. Equally, I think one of the interesting things about operational debt and technical debt to a, la- to a lesser extent is that bringing in outside consultants to help you identify it and address it is almost always a failure. Like you can bring in an outside consultant to identify technical debt. And I think about half, you'll get a 50% success rate because they'll be able to look at the facts. You can gather facts. This machine has this amount of uh, and you've identified that you want X amount of uh, and there's a gap and you need more uh, you know, that type of stuff. But what they don't get is the business context. So when you bring in outside consultants, they don't have the time and they also don't have the motivation. Spending time to learn the business process and then getting people's confidence to talk about where it's broken. Like if you talk down to, if you sit down with someone and say, what's your job and their livelihood and they think their job, you know, their mortgage and their kids depends on them saying something, something, it's just not possible. I think you really have to be, have a culture and you have to be able to do this internally to say this, this task needs to be reviewed and changed or whatever. 
Well, yes, but no. I agree with the last thing you said that this has to be this change has to be made internally. But but I will toot my own horn here for a little bit and say, mm. as a consultant, we have been very successful going in with clients ones that are motivated, self-selected mm. group, of course. But we've been very successful going in. But you have to, as a consultant, take off the ego shield and you know. As a consultant, your you your tendency is to want to come in and say, "Dear client, this is the answer, and I know it's the answer because you're paying me a lot of money to have it, and I couldn't bear for it to not be the answer." Yeah. And instead, come in almost as more of a facilitator, and as goofy as this is going to sound, give the client the safe space to come to the acknowledgement that you've already come to, but but wisely refrained from stating oh. so that they come upon it as, oh, gosh, here we are trying to solve this problem that really doesn't need to be solved at all. And what we need to do is make this other change over here to cause the problem, the issue didn't entirely go away. Hmm. And you sit there and say, wow, that was really brilliant. And most importantly, when you report the results to the senior executives, you have to be very careful to walk that fine line between saying, Bob over here came up with the idea yeah. and going all the way off the edge to, well, geez, if we came up with it on our own, what are we paying you for? Yeah. So you need a special kind of client that recognizes that's the need, that the consultant as catalyst is really the value and doesn't need, you know, doesn't require your name, your branding and your ownership of all the ideas to be on anything to justify the, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars they paid you. Hmm. I Wait, I got you. I, I actually got you well, speechless. I think, there's, I think there's so many. I mean, obviously, consulting is a very difficult job and something that I've done. And the challenge as a consultant who comes into organizations is you're an outsider and you can often come in where people are hostile to you. And although we pretend that consultancies seem to have, you know, strange magical powers, the magical power that they have is that they take responsibility for something that nobody else wants to in your organization. And I think that anything that's rooted in that sort of relationship or in that sort of purpose, I'm going to bring in an outside consultancy because then I can blame them. I think it always goes wrong in the end. Well, and I actually, you know, the, the secret magical superpower is that we don't mind getting yelled at. Um, <laughs> but I agree with you that you yeah. can't just come in cold and do a project-based uh, consulting gig. And again, I'll toot my own horn because we will do consulting, but only for clients that we have long-term, you know, many-year relationships with because yeah. what we bring to the table at that point is a deep internalized knowledge of their business processes, cultural strengths and weaknesses, you know, to the point where we can sit in on a call and say, you know, Ed has the answer to that one because I talked to him last week. And you can be that connecting glue. So I would absolutely agree that unless you've got a consultant that's willing to engage for the long term, you're doomed to failure. I think what we've agreed with is that that technical debt is actually in two forms. There's a technology debt that you inherit with any decision that you make, and that can be addressed by strategic thinking. So you could make good choices about the right product, uh, make good choices about how much of the product you buy, although increasingly that is being turned on by licensing. So that is the product has a lot of features. So maybe I'm not a big fan of this subscription licensing thing, but do you think subscription licensing impacts on technical debt if you could light up features later? That's an interesting question. I think it doesn't simply because the big problem is that the vendors will never turn anything off. Yeah. Because vendors quite reasonably don't want to piss off their clients. And so there's going to be somebody somewhere who is using that feature that you just decided to turn off. And they'll scream and yell mm -hmm. and say, but that was the one reason I used your product. 
So they don't and they leave it in there. But then that means that all these, you know, unused features and functions can A, clutter up performance, B, add massive amounts of confusion to operators because it's like, oh, well, I need to know these three things, but they're buried in these 37 things that are actually irrelevant, but left in there. Mm. So I think there's a, there's a real danger there that vendors with SaaS, you know, there's almost no cost to leaving things there. So they, they do. The second thing is, is that software defined and operational debt go together. So yes, if, exactly. if you have an operational debt, you need to improve the operational performance. How fast can I do ad moves and changes? How can I do them during the day instead of at night? Can I do them risk-free? I think software tooling is actually addressing this concept of operational debt as part of the overall debt or technology debt or infrastructure debt that you have. Well, and I, I would come back to one of your favorite themes, which is as anything as a service is really just a, you know, a sophisticated form of outsourcing. And it's subject to all the limitations of outsourcing that you have harped on over the years. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's ever I, changed my mind that outsourcing is a bad idea in nearly well, in 90, 90% of cases. Uh, outtasking can be very good, but yes. outtasking is you you stay the general contractor. You don't go out and hire a general contractor to translate what you think you want into what he thinks you want. Yeah. So, yes. You can outsource toilet cleaning. Exactly. But you exactly. may not be able to outsource toilet ownership. Or just the entire, yeah, <laughs> the entire process of, what do they call that? Um uh, something engineering, sanitation engineering. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think what we're coming around to, and I know you hate when I try to boil things up into a, a bottom line, but the yeah. bottom line is if you've been thinking about technical debt, yay. Yeah. If you've been focusing just on technology debt, though, you should probably consider the degree to which you've got operational debt in your organization and start thinking about the twin superpowers of automation and questioning the business process. <laughs> Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up for today's show. Thanks very much for joining us, Jonah. Where can people find you on the internet? Places to go after me on LinkedIn. I love to talk to people there. And Jonah is spelled J-O-H-N-A, Till, T-I-L-L. T-I-L-L, two L's, and Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can search for her on LinkedIn and chat to her there. You can find me on Twitter as at Ethereal Mind. And of course, if you've got any follow-up or any feedback on today's show, we'd welcome it if you go over to packetpushes.net slash FU. You can tell us exactly what you think with some follow-up. There's a page there. We don't track you. We don't ask for any, any personal information unless you're willing to give it. Uh, and it would be very helpful if you're still listening to tell other people about us. We're hoping to grow the show a little bit more in 2022, get up to some critical scale. Uh, if we can get larger, we can start to talk about moving to a weekly cadence and maybe getting more, uh, providing you with more content and more discussions like these. If you have been, thanks so much for listening.